During this time, uh, you know, you got a devil, a little devil on one shoulder, a little angel on the other shoulder, and the devil's going, yeah, you gotta, you gotta go for it, you know, you gotta go for it. You'll find a bump, you know, you'll find a bump, you can make a couple turns, you got it. You can always dive into ground effect and squeak onto the runway, and, uh, and then, the, you know, maybe that's the devil, right? And then the angel is just telling you, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Because in Uvalde, it's, uh, it's pretty hostile terrain. You can't, it's not like Minnesota where you find a little farm field or something and you, uh, and you put it down there. It's pretty nasty uh, scrub and, and rocks and fences and junk. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. My name is Chuck. I'm your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 93. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization located in the high desert of Los Angeles, California. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. Thank you for joining us on another Soaring Journey here on the podcast, and thank you to all of our Patreon pilots who continue to financially support the show. If you want to help, you can go to patreon.com slash sky or you can click on the link in the show notes. You can also go to our website, SoaringTheSky.com, for other options to help grow the soaring community. But one of the most important things you can do is tell your aviation friends about us and all the great guests they are missing, like our guest today that we're going to catch up here in just a few minutes. Don Ingram was working on cars. He was a mechanic in California, and he was hoping to move up and work at the Ferrari dealership. Then a friend talked him into taking a ride in a glider. Well, like many of us, taking our first unpowered flight, that changed everything for Don. He was bitten by that soaring bug. Don shares with us so many very interesting stories. So what's up with our title, Monkeys, Coconuts, Field Fires, and John Denver? Well, let's find out. Don, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Happy to have you with us. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Thanks a lot for this invite. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. We've chatted back and forth here a couple times, so it's It's great to get you on the show. Now, with all our first-time guests on the show, we do like to ask how you got started in aviation and, of course, particularly in gliders. So, Don, can you please share with the listeners a little bit about your story? Sure. So, uh, it's I guess it's kind of interesting. A lot of the pilots that I run into talk about how you know they were looking at the sky when they were four four or five years old, and and they've always you know kind of dreamt of getting up there and. And I didn't really come out of that mold, so to speak. I I really didn't. I really wasn't drawn to it in my youth or anything like that. In fact, uh, it wasn't until I was uh, my late twenties, I guess, and uh, working as a foreign car mechanic in in California, trying to work my way up into a Ferrari dealership in Long Beach. And one of my um, one of the mechanics that worked in a bay next to me who has since become one of my best friends uh, and still is, in fact, um, Bruce McIntyre. He would talk about 
this gliding thing that he did and that how he would uh, he would take his 126 and I had no idea what the heck he was talking about he'd take his 126 up and fly around and sometimes he could land just right and and, and kind of uh, roll into the little divot where he tied it down and uh, and uh, I was uh, I would listen politely and you know try not to yawn but uh, it just sounded uh, it sounded so foreign whatever he was getting excited about that I really couldn't relate to it anyway um, fast forward probably seven or eight years later, yeah, maybe maybe not that long, yeah, but maybe. Anyway, I was um, getting ready to move from California to uh, Minnesota, and uh, I had packed up all my stuff and everything, and I went to visit him. He had moved to Santa Barbara, and he sort of kidnapped me and took me to the Santa Inez Airport where they had uh, and, and I kind of I think they have an on-again, off-again commercial operation up there still, but um, – and uh, he had a Blanick all reserved, and um, he he, uh, he told me we're going flying. I'm like, yeah, whatever. So uh, we got into this Blanick, and uh, they hooked us up and towed us up into the little foothills of Santa Barbara there. And and the first flight, I don't think there was any great lift, but we kind of stretched out, maybe added 15 minutes to the flight, and uh, came back and landed. And uh, I was so blown away by the whole thing. Um, that when the the woman came over to you know kind of open the canopies and help us out and on our way, I just poked my little credit card out through that little slidey window on the side of the canopy and told her to shoo and uh, told Bruce we were going <laughs> we were going again. And uh, I I remember us taking like four flights in a row uh, nice. that day until Bruce is just like done. I'm really tired. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm do one more. And um, so really that was, I think that was probably the first time I ever even saw a glider uh, up close. And, um, and you know, the fact that he had, you know, on the first or second flight, he's like, all right, take the stick and this is what it does. And I remember thinking, uh, you know, you, you're crazy for trusting me. I actually thought he, he must think I know a lot more than I do about what the heck's going on. I just knew I loved it. I didn't know. I didn't want to steer the thing. Right. Anyway. Right. So yeah, that was, uh, that was the first, first introduction to it, uh, right there. Nice. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. Well, when we chatted before we had talked a little and, and clearly Bob Wonder is someone, you know, pretty well, I'm sure he's very familiar to our U S listeners, but maybe a little less to our friends outside the United States. Could you spend a few minutes talking about how you got to know Bob and what it was like working with him on various instructional materials, like that piece you did for his uh, gliding mentor series about landouts? And just maybe a few words about Bob and what he's meant to the soaring community here in North America over the years. Sure, sure. I'll do my do my best to piece together kind of a three part question, but I'll, I can I can connect it to what I was just talking about too, which was um, that flight out in Santa Barbara. Uh, that was sort of my last um, you know week in California before moving to Minnesota, and I was really bummed because uh, I assumed wrongly that you know minnesota is flat there's no hills or mountains and somehow i got it in my head that gliders needed hills or mountains to to work so i moved out here to minnesota and uh, stopped being a mechanic because who wants to work on cars where they get so rusty and it's so cold half the year so i, I went back to school and got a degree in computer technology and went to work for a company called cray research 
the, uh, the makers of the world's fastest supercomputer at the time. And I was, I was working for them for about 10 years and uh, a, a colleague of mine one day walked into my office and said, hey, Don, we got to try this one of these days. And he flapped down a newspaper on my, my desk and I was busy doing something. I said, yeah, thanks a lot, Nick. I'll look at that in a minute. And, bah, bah, bah. and uh, after he'd left, I finished up whatever I was doing and, and looked at it. And it was a Bob Wander uh, glider rides ad in, on this newspaper. And I, and I was just shocked that, uh, that, in fact, they did gliding in Minnesota. I, again, it was one of those assumptions I've made, and, and I never really uh, stopped to think apparently long enough about it. Uh, I also remember that day, I think it was a Friday, uh, just grabbing a newspaper, looking at the thing, calling him. He didn't pick up because he's at the airport flying. And, uh, you know, this is back in uh, 1993, I guess it was, 1993. And uh, I just drove to the airport. It was about you know, half an hour, 40-minute drive from where I was in Minneapolis. And uh, drove down to the Stanton Airport. And there, there's Bob coming back, uh, walking the wing of, a, of an orange 233 with uh, talking, talking to a student and walking the wing. And... They were chatting about their flight and, and whatnot. And as soon as he got back, I introduced myself. I told him I told him I wanted to go up for a ride. And <laughs> and he was like, Well, you know, you have to you have to schedule, you know, a flight. You can't just come you to go. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I you know, I said, I had no idea how this whole thing works. I just, you know, literally just got in my car and drove down here. I totally understand. Uh, can I watch? And uh, I think he picked up on my uh my uh, enthusiasm and when he was done with the student he's kind of like all right get in <laughs> and uh and uh, he and i uh took a flight and that just you know solidified my uh, my interest in soaring and uh and i immediately said uh, in fact we still joke about it occasionally to this day that uh, he said it, he he reminded me I was asking him for a, some kind of discount or something. <laughs> Look, I was thinking this onesie twosie ride thing, or I didn't know how lessons worked or anything. I just I just wanted in, and uh, I said, well, you know, you know, can I pay ahead? Can I buy a big pack of flights or training or how does all this whole thing work? And um, I just uh, again, this was '93, so I think it was in June. I have to look at my logbook, but um, within a, a couple few months. Uh, my 20th, uh, 20th or 21st flight, um, I soloed. And then by the end of the season, I had, uh, I had gotten, I'd managed to burrow into the books enough to uh, fool them into giving me my license. So that was, uh, that was my official entry, you know, into the sport. And, and actually that winter I bought a, a standard, uh, Jantar. Oh, nice. Um, that needed, yeah, it needed uh, some work. The guy had started refinishing the wings and discovered how much work that was, and decided that he was going to sell it. And so, I, I think I got into it for ten or twelve thousand dollars, and then refinished it myself. Uh, which is uh, which is a whole another story I won't get into. But um, yeah, and so Bob uh, is was you know from the from the day I met him, is very very funny, very interesting, very very smart guy probably one of the smartest guys I've met. He, you know, uses a lot of that, you know, brain power to, you know, figure out where you're at as a student and what the next steps you need to take are. 
and and he can frame those in three or four different ways using different metaphors and analogies, always with a you know a light touch and a good sense of humor. So I would classify him as uh, one of the best instructors I think I've had in my life. Yeah, very good. And I was hook, line, and sinker into this thing, and uh, yeah, so that was it for me. Now, speaking of landouts and the piece you wrote for Bob's instructional series. You open up with a story about a monkey and a coconut. Could you tee up that for our listeners and maybe also uh, share a couple of key themes that you were trying to hit in that piece you wrote? Oh, and be sure to let them know that maybe uh, where they can get it online if they're interested to read it. Yeah, you bet. Uh, and, and to connect what I was just talking about to that. So um, as I, I got more flight, more and more flight time and I refinished that Jantar, I mean, I ground all of the gel coat off of it and, and shot it with gel coat and went through all the grits of sandpaper and polishing and everything to get it looking just, uh, just gorgeous. I mean, I really spent a lot of, a lot of minutes per square inch on that thing. And um, in, I don't know if they still do it here in Minneapolis or not. Maybe they do. It's called a sports aviation conference and they usually do it in the winter. Um, I believe in January, perhaps, and uh, it takes place in downtown in the at the convention center, which is a series of these huge, sort of shallow geodesic domes where you can bring in large exhibits and whatnot. And uh, I uh, was invited to bring this my jantar there uh, for this exhibit and um, and set it up and have a you know sort of a big board explaining you know that it was a glider and these are how they uh, they get airborne and this is what they're capable of etc etc so um i did that i brought my glider there and i was also asked to make a presentation on something uh related to soaring and may may have been bob that asked me uh, I, don't, I can't remember if it was the conference uh committee or if it was bob but anyway i was scheduled to do this talk and um part of that talk that i gave was about um, being a, try, being aware of being uh, sort of overconfident when you're when you're soaring, uh, and trying to keep in mind, you know, try to balance out the risk with the joy and all that kind of stuff, and uh, and some of the uh, some of the ways that you can kind of be lulled into complacency in certain situations, and find yourself you know in a in a corner before you. Uh, before you expected it. So after I gave that talk at the sports aviation conference, Bob pulled me to site, pulled me aside and said, you know, uh, why don't you uh, write that up? See if you can, you know, flesh that out a little more fully and we'll see if we can uh, maybe do something with it. And that uh, effort became the final four minutes, which is the publication you mentioned a minute ago, which is uh, one of the Bob Wander mentor series uh, books and the the opening to that book that you mentioned, which is uh, about the monkey, uh, is something I'd heard, I think, maybe back in my teens. And it always stuck with me as a, as a sort of a kind of a parable to warn you against a certain kind of danger. And basically, it's this. Is in, apparently, in certain areas of Africa, uh, sometimes monkeys end up on your dinner plate. I don't know how common it is or how often the monkeys are eaten or what parts are eaten or anything like that. But I know that it happened and that obviously it involved having to catch the monkey before you can eat the monkey. And so the Africans have had a very clever way of catching monkeys. Obviously, they're very fast. They're very bright. They're very clever. They can bite hard. They can grab hard. Many of them are far stronger than we are. So how, how did they do this? Well, they would take a coconut and 
they clonk off, uh, you know, like maybe a third of it and hollow it out and drill a hole in the opposite side, poke a rope through, tie a knot, and you maybe got six or eight feet of rope and they would pound a stake into the ground and tie the rope very securely to the stake. So you had a stake in the ground, six or eight feet of rope connected to a coconut, a hollow coconut, and then they would pour rice into the coconut and scatter rice on the ground, and then they would go hide in the bushes, and they would wait. And uh, apparently these monkeys, the monkey come out of the, the bush, and they'd be watching from a distance, and the monkey would eat some of this rice just laying around, look in the coconut, reach his hand in and grab a fistful of this you know fragrant rice. And then the uh, hunters would just stand up from behind the bushes and just start walking towards the monkey. And the monkey would hold on to that rice so hard, making a fist, a fist too big to come back out of the hole, and would pull and yank and screech and scream, and but would not let go of the rice. And they would come up and you know conk it over the head or however they did away with it. And I thought that was so interesting that there's a part of the brain that wouldn't sort of revisit this clenched fist, you know, like maybe this is, uh, you know, maybe this isn't benefiting you right now. Maybe you let, let go of the right, you know, and fight another day. Yeah. So I use that as a um, sort of a, uh, I don't know, an observation at the beginning of the book that I wrote to basically point out that there's in some ways uh, we glider pilots do may do the same thing when we're you know chasing a state record or we're at a contest trying to get back on the last day we're looking good in the standings and you know we got this big long final glide that's not quite there you know uh, or uh, or one of the one of these uh, one of these situations we're in where we start talking ourselves into you know we've got basically we've got a hold of that ball of rice and we're not letting go uh, despite uh, despite the hunters <laughs> that are they're strolling towards us from the bushes, uh, and if, yeah. if if we don't uh, kind of keep a bigger perspective about what it is that we do, uh, you may find out. And and uh, to be honest with you, I've had a couple. You you would think I would only need one or two of these close calls for me to be smart enough to to remedy the the thinking pattern. But um, I, I know I was in a, uh, a contest in Hutchinson, Kansas, my, my first one uh, I ever flew in with my, and I was in my Jantar and uh, I found myself, and it was a, it was horrible weather. I mean, it was like 106 degrees, uh, which is not bad for soaring, but it was 106 degrees, like all the way up. It was what they call an isothermal day. So there wasn't cooler air above. So the thermals basically had, uh, had no cool air to rise through. So, I was out on task and uh, getting low, and I went over and I was doing these swoopy little passes, these beats, as they call them in New Zealand, over this field fire. And so they were burning some field or whatnot, and I must have been like at 300 feet. And I would come zooming in, I'd get just a bunch of lift, and I'd try to make the you know most uh, efficient turn I could and go back through it again. I was doing these figure eights. I wasn't gaining altitude. I wasn't losing. I was just waiting for something to happen uh, to see a bird circling or a cue pop or something. And, and I caught myself, um, doing that. And I, and, and I thought, this is crazy. What am I doing? And, uh, I land, it was a regional contest. I had no, no shot at the podium. <laughs> and so, you know, I landed and, uh, I kind of gave myself a, a talking to, uh, about how, you know, you know, how did I, you know, get, cause that's pretty dangerous, you know, field fires, 
can produce a lot of heat and oftentimes in a very narrow area, you know, they go up as, as, you know, as wide as the pencil and going up, you know, a couple thousand feet per minute, maybe in some spots that could easily exceed your aileron authority. And next thing you know, you're upside down at 300 feet and that doesn't usually end well. Yeah. yeah. So that's what sort of prompted me to write this because I know I'm not the only one. Uh, I've talked to plenty of contest pilots, uh, you know, you get, you have a couple of beers and you start, you know, confessing some of your sins. And, and uh, it's amazing <laughs> that uh, so many of us are still at the table to confess our sins sometimes, you know, it's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's the purpose of the book really was to, uh, and, and uh, I don't know if you had a chance to skim it, but um, the, the first part of the book is, is kind of being aware of these emotions that, that may kind of steer you into doing stuff you shouldn't do. But the second part of the book is to remind you that if you think back for those of us who've done, been lucky enough to do cross country, uh, have them have the time and the, the work schedule and the, and the glider and the crew that it all involves uh, coming together. Um, you often find that the best part of your adventure was after you landed. At least that's been true for me. You know, I end up uh, at somebody's house uh, playing checkers with their kids at the at a farmhouse table, or in some uh, in a, in a bar having a having a couple of beers and and just you know joking and talking with the locals. Or uh, it's always been a great adventure. And until you, but until you land, you think everything. You think the whole world's going to end if you can't you know, just hang on. And and it's a it's kind of a, a, a tactical disillusion. <laughs> or ta- tactical delusion that we, we uh, you know, that we sometimes fall victims to. So that's what that book's about. And is there a way to get it online? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in fact, um, Bob's website, bobwander.com, he has got um, uh, just an awesome selection of books. And that is one of them. And he, uh, he has a great, he, he ships immediately and I don't even think he charges for shipping. So yeah, bobwander.com, you, you can find some stuff, uh, some very, pretty hard to find stuff too there. It's called the, uh, the final four minutes. And then I should say, Bob, uh, did the other half of the book or the third, I can't remember now. And, uh, it's basically, um, some of his very good advice on, on how to, you know, if you do have to land out some of the common hurdles or pitfalls that that even um, experienced pilots will fall into so it's it's a good read well i'll definitely put that in the show notes there so people can definitely check that out and pick up a book if they want if you had to pick just one out of out of must be hundreds can you share with the listeners the most memorable or impactful cross-country flight that comes to mind and what made that day special that's a good question and and uh I, I've got this sort of mental Rolodex of, of flights that have all been, you know, very special in their own way. And, um, I, and I know a lot of contest pilots, you ask them, you know, how was your, how's your flight today? And, and a lot of them can remember, you know, every thermal, every decision, every, you know, everything they did, you, we can just uh, replay that back in our minds. But, uh, for me, I have to say, and this is backing up again, back when uh, I first started flying with Bob back in 93, um, I was, you know, Bob recommends literature. He says, that's the best money you can spend if you want to learn to fly, you know, a $20 book, you know, how fast can you spend that, uh, you know, at the airport, <laughs> you know, a third of a toe. Yeah, right. Um, 
So, uh, and, and videos too. And so one of the things I got from Bob was something called, I believe it was the, uh, the quiet challenge. I think that's right. And it was a, uh, it's a video of the Hilton cup. Um, uh, this cup that Baron Hilton and, um, oh, I'm going to forget his name now. Um, the German soaring coach, uh, it'll come to me, Reichman, Helmut Reichman. So uh, Baron Hilton and Helmut Reichman created this Hilton Cup thing that ran for years. It's no longer running, unfortunately. And basically this video was about pilots who had won the Hilton Cup, glider, glider pilots who had won the Hilton Cup. And Baron Hilton would fly them out to his ranch out there in Nevada, uh, which is the, his ranch is like the size of, size of Rhode Island out there. And I remember the the video started showing these guys stepping off this, you know, the citation, some Learjet or something onto his property. And they do a freeze frame and they say, you know, this is blah, 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 blah. And they talk about the pilot's accomplishments. And then then they'd unfreeze the frame and a couple more guys would come down the steps. And I was just, I would just be transfixed by these uh, amazing pilots at the, going to this Hilton Cup thing. And John Denver was narrating the thing. And uh, I think maybe Cliff, Cliff Robertson maybe was also the two of them, and they basically covered what the Hilton Cup was like, what it was like to go to the ranch. And back then, I think it was 10 days, may have been two weeks, that you would spend at Baron Hilton's ranch, and there'd be like maybe 15 or 20 pilots. And they would stay in motorhomes uh, that they they had lined up on the ranch, and they would fly uh, Baron Hilton's uh, his uh, quiver of gliders that he'd assembled just for this occasion. And he, uh, Baron, loved for these uh, top pilots to set records from his property, you know, up and down the, the Sierra or the Rockies or the Pine Nuts or whatever. It's basically the Minden area out there in Nevada. Anyway, I must have watched that video, you know, 50 times or maybe even more. And then, uh, and then as I got in, and I it never just, I only watched it because I could just see how far, you know, some of these people took the sport, never right. really dreaming that I have a shot at this thing. But so it turns out, fast forward later, I'm running around in my Jantar and my, and then later, uh, my discus. And uh, one, uh, one two year period, I managed to uh, win the Hilton Cup and go to the ranch. And it was, it's oh, like, nice. Yeah. So I was there in the year 2000. And it was kind of a weird year. There was a there was kind of an odd thing that happened with the with the um, eastern region, which is what we are. And they actually sent two of us out there. But uh, that's a that's a whole other story. But anyway, so I was out there, and oh, I should back up a little bit. And one of the things in that video, going back to the video for a minute, that was uh, captivating was everybody uh, tries to make these long flights. And there's a scene in the, in the movie where they're all gathered around at a picnic table, around the radio, and they're talking to some German pilot who is trying to get back from, you know, from 80 miles away or something like that. And the sun's going down. Everything's cooling off. He's kind of getting low. Uh, they don't know if he's going to make it. They lose radio contact. Everybody's anxious. And, and finally they find out that, oh, he landed out in the scrub, but he's okay. And like they send a helicopter for him or something. And uh, so anyway, I thought that was very cool too. Um, and so fast forward, I get, uh, I get, uh, win the cup, I go out there with, uh, and you can take one uh, person with you when you go to the ranch. So I took my wife for the first five days of the 10 days, but we had like a one-year-old daughter at the time. And that was as long as she'd ever been away from, you know, from her mom. So then she, then my wife uh, came back to be with my, 
little girl and my buddy Bruce, who I had mentioned at the beginning here, uh, out in California, the guy who took me for a ride up in uh, Santa Inez, he came out for the second five days. Uh, while I was there, I tried to complete a thousand kilometer uh, flight in an ASW 20 and the way the, the Hilton cup works. Oh, wow. Yeah. The way, the way the Hilton cup works is really cool. I, I don't want to spend too much time on this. I'll, I'll relive it and uh, make all your listeners suffer, suffer through an old man <laughs> revisiting memories. But uh, oh, no, no, it's great. yeah. So, so we, uh, the way it worked is in the morning we get up out of our motor homes. Again, everybody had their motor home and you'd kind of, kind of sauntered down to Baron Hilton's, the ranch house where uh, everything is, was set up kind of like you'd see like a hotel buffet, all these stainless steel domes with, you know, eggs and bacon and coffee and, you know, under all the stuff. And then you'd sit down there and shoot the breeze with all the other pilots. And, and then uh, Dan Grudgel, uh, Gudgel, Grudgel, uh, at the time was the one doing the weather. He'd come down and give a very, very thorough, elaborate weather forecast of, um, you know what, uh, what, what to expect, and then they would pass around this hat, and uh, you'd reach into the hat and pull out a, a number. And uh, once everybody had their number pulled, that was the order you got to pick your glider for the day. So, I mean, he had the they had discus, they had you know Janus ASW twenty, they had DGs, they you know they had everything there. The one day I picked the uh, ASW twenty. And they had actually messed up the weather that day. <laughs> and uh, they said, oh, it's not going to be any good. It's going to be blue, blah, blah, blah. And there were so many Europeans at the Hilton Cup. And the Europeans love sort of, you know, what, uh, Western United States, the whole cowboy thing. And there's this ghost town nearby called Bodie. And they were all very excited, or at least all the crews were, maybe the pilots weren't. They were all getting excited because uh, Baron Hilton was going to have a big old bus come by and take everybody to this ghost town. I just turned to my wife and I'm like, yeah, we're not going to ghost town. <laughs> and uh, I said, I'll take the ASW-20. And the, another guy who was there was uh, the German open class champion, Holger Caro. He basically turned to his wife and said the same thing. It's like, no, nah, we're, we're not going to a ghost town. <laughs> so we, we both went out and grabbed a couple ships. The day turned into a great day. So I don't know why weather forecast wow. got messed up. but So I did, a, uh, I did this thousand uh, – kilometer flight it was a yo-yo flight down the uh um well anyway in that area i'm going to detail but awesome. i just barely uh the sun was going down it was getting weak i barely had final glide made i had to clear one more saddle and i had to follow a river to to get back home and uh, i found myself sitting in the in the same situation as this guy i had you know sort of had the video of this guy when he was at the ranch and uh it was a uh, as a moment i'll never forget where somehow i went from my living living room dreaming of uh you know what these pilots are doing to being one of them yeah and that's that had to be that was surreal. totally surreal yeah totally and and when i landed just like in the movie when you know when the, when the uh you know if if a good flight is made baron hilton is waiting there on the runway with a bottle of champagne and pop pops it and you know maybe pour some on your head and some in a glass and you know you celebrate with everybody so and when i when i landed and rolled up there he was uh he was out there with the champagne and it was it was a ama amazing memory I, I you know i i was hope i would hope that i'd be you know 
kind of look and act a little more like Steve McQueen in that suave situation. But I was so, <laughs> so drained and so exhausted. I just remember staggering out of the cockpit, probably carrying my pee bag or something, you know. <laughs> but uh, it was uh, nonetheless. So I'll, I'll adjust those memories. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> what an awesome experience, though. That That is awesome. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was uh, that was. A- and the show is proud to announce yet another new sponsor. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They are proud to be the exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market and arriving in North America this spring. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call. Located in Eagle, Idaho, Wings and Wheels has a new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications and completed in 2021. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. Come visit them next time you are in the Boise area. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. And through the end of May, if you use the promo code POD2021, you'll get a free 8-inch sailplane decal with your order. We're stoked to have them on board the pod and thank them for their support. Your friend and mentor, Bob Aside, who else in the soaring community do you really admire either for their soaring prowess and accomplishments and or for what they have done for the sport over the years in any other ways? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big list of people to, to try to pluck one or two out of. There have been so many really generous uh, people involved in our, uh, our lovely little sport of kings. Um, but, um, for, for me, I think, um, and maybe this is the way I'm geared, but I would have to put Carl Streetick in there and not just, you know, because, and most of the listeners probably know he's, uh, you know, he's the speed King, you know, he's been, uh, he's been, you know, making the longest flights and winning the most contests since as far back as I can remember. And um, in fact, uh, we were, uh, I, I got the honor of, uh, or, or the pleasure of flying with Barry uh, Yeager and his Arcus earlier this year uh, at the seniors in, in Seminole Lake. And uh, Carl would have swept that one too, except he, uh, he nicked a restricted zone and they gave him zero points for one of the days or else he would have walked away with that contest once again. But oh, man. yeah, I know, but he, you know, he, he's, he's won so many of them. He doesn't care. He and, uh, uh, <laughs> right. oh, seriously. Yeah. But he, uh, he, um, I guess I would say that, uh, and he's been really, really, uh, supportive of me and very, very kind. In fact, the very first, uh, national contest I flew, which is at Albert Lee here in Minnesota. Uh, it's really kind of a funny story how it happened, but he, uh, was my mentor in my, my very first national. And, oh, wow. and, um, I really, uh, I was there to learn, you know, in fact, uh, probably every contest I've gone to, it's been with that in mind just to see how the, how the good guys do it. And Carl was just, he's so generous with his time. He's got such a good sense of humor, uh, that, and that's all, uh, that's all great. Uh, but 
somehow he, uh, in a sport like ours, to you know, to end up at the top or in the top two uh, of the score sheet, you know, contest after contest, year after year, decade after decade, it it um, it reminds us that uh, something like this can be done, and uh, I mean that that he's got this skill set, and that he has this uh, he has this ability to uh, to to do this magic. And that we could all do that too if we, you know, could, can figure out, you know, you know how he's doing it, right? And uh, and just to know that there's somebody in the sport who can, can so consistently um, excel, it reminds us all that um, that we've all still got stuff to learn, even though you know Mother Nature is a pretty good teacher of that in general. But uh, it, it would be a whole different story for me. If, you know, like, say, you know, a handful of pilots, say a dozen pilots sort of took turns at floating to the top of the score sheet, depending on, you know, whether they chose the right part of the sky to fly in or, you know, or took the uh, or, you know, took took the right risks or whatnot. Uh, it, it would feel totally different if there were no Carl Streetix out there. But because there is, it reminds me that this is a game that you can uh, that if you study and you pay attention, and uh, and you know you put everything into it, you can really learn to do some pretty magical stuff uh, in a sailplane. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would say so. So Car- Carl for me uh, would would be that guy. Yeah. Can you talk about a couple of the more scary moments in your glider, and what were the chain of events that led up to them, and what you learned from those experiences? Yeah, <laughs> there's a pretty good list of those too, Chuck, along with the, <laughs> the pilots that uh, I'd have to uh, pick out to admire. But um, I, I think, um, uh, and it relates, uh, what I'm about to tell you, it relates a little bit back to that book that I ended up writing with the final four minutes about, you know, about not getting, not, not taking risks unless you're fully aware of exactly what risk what that really means. And, and this was, uh, I think it was in 99, uh, at the Uvalde standard class nationals. I was out there playing my discus at the time. And, um, I, it was a, it was supposed to be a really booming day and it was, they called a post tab pilot option speed task. So you had all these turn points scattered everywhere. And you, 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 if you could pick out the right, the strongest part of the sky to, to set up a circuit, you know, you could really, you know, rip around and turn in some really high speeds. And so, um, I had heard this story, uh, of when, uh, Klaus Holigaus, uh, came out in way back in 1984 with the very first discus, and he he flew a contest at Uvalde, and he went and flew over the uh, the river there. Um, uh, the, I guess the uh, what was it the uh, it the Rio Grande? I can I guess maybe, but uh, he and he had this uh, anyway. He found this one area of the sky out by the river uh, that he could run back and forth in this long cloud street. And uh, he did that back and forth for a couple hours and came back and turned in a speed that was 10 miles an hour faster than everybody else and just cleaned everyone's clocks. And the discus, uh, the first and only discus ever to enter the United States and won the standard class nationals uh, uh, with uh, Klaus Holigans at the helm. Well, I remembered that story and I headed out to that stretch of river. <laughs> it's on the border, border with Mexico. And it was, uh, I don't know. Um, I remember it being like maybe 40 miles from Uvalde. I mean, you could check a map and, uh, and figure, figure out how far it was away, maybe even more than that. 
But I got out there and uh, hoping to find myself a, a really blazing street that I could I could uh, I could rip around and and by then they had changed the rules. You couldn't just go yo-yo back and forth between two points. You had to add a third point, so it had to be a triangle kind of a thing. Oh, okay. But I could, I could maybe do that. And anyway, long story, a little bit shorter. Uh, didn't happen, but nonetheless, I did end up way away from Uvalde as the day was starting to you know uh, to weaken. And so I figured, well, I better get home. And so I had this, uh, and cloud bases were super high. I swear they were fourteen or 15,000 feet uh, cloud bases there. And so I sat on, the, on this final glide back to Uvalde, and everything had kind of turned blue and soft, and there was nothing happening on my Vario. And I had like a 45-minute you know, final glide back, and I was watching my computer, and, um, and it was telling me, oh, you're 50 feet. And I had the McCready set to zero. So basically – I was best L over D, a long way from the airport, and just barely had glide made. Every once in a while, my computer would say, oh, you're 50 feet over glide slope. Oh, you're 50 feet under, 50 feet over, 50 feet under, all for like for a half an hour wow. <laughs> as I'm trying to uh, get back to the airport. And during this time, uh, you know, you got a devil, a little devil on one shoulder, a little angel on the other shoulder, and the devil's going, yeah, you got you to gotta go for it. You know, you got to go <laughs> for it. You're gonna, you'll find a bump. You know, you'll find a bump. You can make a couple turns. You got it. You can always dive into ground effect and squeak onto the runway. And, uh, and then the, you know, maybe that's the devil, right? And then the angel is just telling you, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Cause at Uvalde, it's, uh, it's pretty hostile terrain. You can't, it's not like Minnesota where you find a little farm field or something right. and you, uh, and you put it down there. It's pretty nasty, uh, scrub and, and rocks and fences and junk. And so, um, I, uh, uh, I almost, I almost went for it, and I got to the point where there was one little airport I could just make. It was actually a hunting lodge, but they had a little, a little dirt strip there. I was really torn. I almost, uh, you know, I almost went for it, and then finally, I, I, I chickened out and uh, turned, and, and just barely made it to this little, this dirt strip at this, this hunting lodge or whatever, and, and landed there. And it was another one of those cases where. And when I thought back at it, I never would, I never would have made it, you know, and for anybody who's done cross country or especially contests or record flying or, or even flying locally and you, and you can just barely make it home and you, you know, you not even enough to do a pattern. You just kind of try to, you know, do a, a kind of a straight in a, a rolling finish onto the runway, which I, I do not recommend at all, but it doesn't take much uh, for that whole plan to fall apart. And then You've basically thrown away all of you. There's no plan B, right? You are you're too low. You can't see you, you can't see any other place to go. Let alone you don't have the altitude to go there. So uh, yeah. I would say I've actually had a couple situations like that where uh, I sort of locked in and and committed and uh, and said never again. And uh, finally, there in Uvalde, I did I did bail out. But um, yeah, those are those are some of the scariest ones. Is when you're having that little mental conversation with yourself about pushing past your limits you know there have been there have been a couple other uh landings that i've i've had to make in in pretty dodgy terrain that i i I got very lucky and didn't damage the aircraft or hurt myself or anything like that but i realized after i landed and i looked around that uh you know that i couldn't chalk this up to skill it was some percentage of skill and some percentage of luck and in in this game that's really not sort of an acceptable equation he should should be more than 90, 90, 95% skill and 
maybe 5% uh, lucky that there wasn't a, a hole or a ditch or a rock that you missed. Don, we hear from several glider school or club folks in the U.S. that over time it is getting harder to get new pilots into cross-country soaring. Has that been your experience up in Minnesota, or maybe you could share some thoughts about how we could change this dynamic in the community? There never has been a, uh, well, put it this way, there there's a lot of interest here in Minnesota in getting up and flying in a glider, whether uh, whether it's ride customers or students or or power pilots looking to add on a rating, or uh, you know, or private owners uh, wanting to take their ship up on a beautiful day, there's plenty of that. And then perhaps the next tier down is you know how much interest is there you know in owning your own ship, which means obviously you got insurance and probably hangar, but you know keep it in a trailer and assemble it on the weekends if you want to go that route. But nonetheless, there's some expenses and a commitment involved there. Then there's cross country, so it's you know hurdle number three. First, you're interested in doing it. Second, you're willing to uh, invest some some money and some time. And then third, uh, you're willing to, uh, to put that a little bit at risk. You know, taking off um, out of range of the airport. And so, uh, I think in an environment where those three first three hurdles have sort of always existed over time. Um, most clubs and commercial operators like myself uh, don't normally let uh, students or members just jump in a club ship and go fly cross country, unless it's you know pretty unless the pilots re- reach a certain point and there's there's rules about you know staying within gliding range of airports on the way and whatnot. So you pretty much generally need to do it in your own ship. So there's a bit of a barrier to entry with with all of that and then even if you push past that i would the risk and the money and the time and all that um then there's the additional challenge of the internet these days you know back uh you know pre-internet you know you kind of go outside looking for something to do something to, to entertain yourself you know whether you're hiking or biking or surfing or or um you know, whatever, playing golf, you're, you know, sort of outdoors, you're looking for stuff in more of an outward direction and soaring would fall into that, you know, into your, um, you know, into your view, I suppose. But now, you know, nowadays with the internet, uh, it is so easy for, you know, pilots or would be pilots, uh, to, to find, um, sort of diversion online and not even be aware that there's something as cool as soaring, you know, out, you know, out there. So I know it's a kind of a long winded answer, but it's a kind of a combination. There's kind of a risk to entry and then there's a, there's a diversion. I think that really um, has sort of hurt the, uh, you know, sort of the membership in the sport. Yeah, that's true. But it does happen. I mean, you know, people do, uh, sorry to interrupt you there, there, uh, we do have, um, a number of pilots have purchased gliders over the last few years and are excited to go do some cross country in them. So it's there, but uh, I love the sport so much. I've always been shocked how, uh, how small it is relative to uh, the sports that I personally consider, you know, sort of inferior. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it just, uh, it must just be a, the way we're all wired. And, you know, really soaring is much more affordable than powered in many, in many uh, areas, yeah. but 
just getting them out to the airport and checking it out i think that's the first step and then once they take that ride you know like like you and i and many others we got hooked as soon as we took that flight yeah before moving on to our ever popular new lightning round question segment how about just leaving us with a parting thought maybe on what you would like to see pilots do more in the gliding community to be more safe for both themselves and for others around them. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I suppose I would recommend uh, something that I do. I think I've always habitually done it. It's something I picked up out of a book or I was taught, but uh, that I, I find a lot of value in, and that is visualizing what you're going to do before you do it. I know I've seen this before. If you watch uh, the Winter Olympics, a lot of times you see these downhill skiers up at the top of the hill. Uh, you, they're at the gate, or before they get to the gate, actually, they're they're sort of in the warm up area, and they've got their eyes closed, and they're just you know kind of just gently uh, moving left and right and shifting their weight. They're they're running the course in their mind, you know, three or four or five times before they get to the gate to actually go down. So that when they start going down the hill, it almost feels as though you know. Uh, you know, it's not taken by surprise. They've already done it a few times in their brain. And I feel if uh, pilots could, um, you know, sort of enjoy um, visualizing, for example, uh, before the, you even pull your, you know, your glider onto the, to the runway to hook up and go, you know, to not just sort of mindlessly regurgitate your, your checklist or your assessment of the weather, but really, really, you know, ask yourself, what would I do if the rope broke there? What if it broke there, broke there, broke there? What if the tow plane's engine <laughs> prop flew off and he, it went down on the runway right in front of me? You know, could I jog left or right? And, and, that, and I'm just specifically talking about takeoff now, but you can visualize every element of flight, you know, what if I see an aircraft suddenly out of the corner of my eye? Am I going to push or pull? Would I turn left or right? How would it feel? How, uh, you know, um, and all of those kinds of things. I think visualization uh, and even driving to or from the airport, <laughs> I know, especially when I first started doing cross country, I couldn't look at a field or let alone the, the, the roof of a Walmart and how they place their air conditioners. I'm always looking, yeah, can I put it down there? Can I put it down there? You know, and uh, not that not that I'm inviting that kind of buffoonery, but I, <laughs> right. if I ever get, you know, sort of caught in a pinch, I've made a, made a couple of stupid decisions, I, I don't want them to be my last. I'd like to at least have thought through, you know, an ugly plan C should I need to employ it. And um, I think by, uh, by visualizing uh, a lot of scenarios before they happen um, is really helpful. Well, it was really helpful. I, I mean, uh, there are a lot of high time pilots that, you know, something happens with the tow plane and um, and they need to get off. You know, sometimes you, you know, you'll pull the spoilers instead of the the tow release because because it's basically taking you by surprise and you haven't you know really run. You don't expect anything to happen because it hasn't happened in the last five hundred times. Anyway, so I, I guess I would say that. That's some great advice. Absolutely, I agree with you on that. So now it's time for our lightning round. Time to have some fun with this. All right. What is the biggest or heaviest item in your landout kit? Oh, I haven't flown cross country since I started the commercial operation, but see, would it, would it have been my tie down? Probably my tie down gear, my claw. And I think it would be my, my tie down kit. Bailout kit strapped to your parachute, in your pockets, or none at all? <laughs> 
Um, uh, none at all. Gloves while flying, even in summer. No. Oxygen above 5,000, 10,000, always or never really need for normal conditions where you fly. Uh, I never, uh, I never use oxygen unless, uh, unless I need it. Flight preparation, day before, morning of, and what are the things you most commonly forget over the years? Yeah, definitely day before. And the thing I most commonly forget, probably extra batteries uh, uh, or, yeah, extra extra fully charged battery. (laughs) Favorite soaring book? Uh, Helmut Reichman's uh, Cross Country Soaring. What would you value more, win a contest or set a record? Win a contest. So land out, you have two options. Busy Tower Class Charlie Regional Airport or relatively short but probably landable farmer's field far off the beaten track. <laughs> oh, this is true confession. I would take that little field. <laughs> I hate talking to them. <laughs> having to explain who I am and what I need. Anyway, yeah. I'll okay, here's another one. You have to land out. Slight uphill with a 15-knot tailwind or slight downhill with a 15-knot headwind. I think I would take the uphill. Emergency. You have two options. Jump out with a parachute or land in a lake. Oh, 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 man. Oh, that's a good one. I think I'd land in a lake. When do you check the pressure in the main tire? Is it per flight, per day, per month, per season, or when it looks low? When it looks low. (laughs) (laughs) If looking for good lift, would you rather follow a raven, a vulture, a hawk, or an eagle? Ooh. You know, I'd I'd have to say eagle. Yeah, I'd have to say eagle. Yep. Sky Sight, XC Skies, Skew T, all the above, none of the above, or just look out the car window when you pull up to the field and play it by ear. Yeah, I'll tell you what, uh, I'm going to pass on that one because a lot of these new soaring, uh, these weather programs are great, and I'm not that familiar with them again. Uh, because I've gone commercial and I, I fly in the weather that it lets me fly. So I got you. Yeah, I'll, I'll. Flaps or no flaps? Ooh, I like them both. Uh, well, I guess I'd like a flap glider if, uh, if, if you're offering. <laughs> <laughs> Wave or conversions? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I, it'd be easier for me to find a wave, but it'd be, mo- be more fun to try to stay in convergence. Okay. Can I say that as an answer? Bucket hat? Cap, bandana, or stocking cap? Uh, bucket hat. Shoes, boots, or barefoot? Barefoot. Water bottle or camel bag? Water bottle. 15 meter or 18 meter? Ooh, 18. Metal gliders or wooden gliders? Ooh, uh, that's interesting. Uh, depends on the glider, I think, but I'd have to go with probably metal. Vario sound and sync or quiet? Sound and sync. Spoilers on turn to final, open or closed? I know the correct answer that I go with all my students closed, but it is a lot of fun to turn, turn and sink at the same time. But uh, right, <laughs> I would recommend closed. In fact, you get in trouble in Germany if you try to do that with them open. Paper checklist or, or mnemonic? Uh, I do mnemonic. Last time you looked at the compass. <laughs> Was it before the last <laughs> annual? When did I dig that up again? Uh, yeah, it's been a long time. P tube, pee bag, diaper, 
or hold it as long as you can and take a pee right when you jump out of the cockpit. Uh, for cross country and contest, it's pee tube. Tie down for the night or stuff it into the trailer every time, no matter what. Uh, I would say hanger or trailer, um, unless it's an absolute, um, absolute confident that the night is going to be uneventful. And even then I prefer to put it away. Gatorade or water in summer flights? Great question. There was always water, but I think I'm a Gatorade fan. Uh, okay. Yeah, now. Favorite single instrument in the cockpit? Going to be the Vario. Tinted canopy or clear? Tinted. Gin and tonic, American lager, craft IPA, red wine, white wine, scotch, or iced tea? Oh, it's a tie between red wine and gin and tonic. So if it's cold, uh, I'm going to probably go with uh, red wine. And if it's hot, I'll go with gin and tonic. Nice. Steak, <laughs> salmon, fried chicken, or garden salad? Got to be steak. And last but certainly not least, we always like to ask our guests if there's anybody or anybody's they would like to give a shout out to that really helped them in their soaring journey. Oh, yeah. Well, certainly Bob Wander. Um uh, he'd be the, the, the first and foremost guy. And uh, obviously Bruce McIntyre, the one that kidnapped me and took me up on, on the, my very first glider ride out in, uh, out in Santa Barbara. And then beyond that, there's just uh, so many great people that I love to see at contests and at the airport that uh, too many to mention, but those two would float to the top. Don, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for the lightning round. That was, uh, that was a blast. Take care. Hey, keep in touch, all right? We'll check back with you again soon. Sounds good. All right, bye, Chuck. Aerox, number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems. Your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable oxygen systems. Aerox now introduces the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. Small, lightweight, and simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. Aerox, engineered for aviators. Glider pilot and author Dale Masters brings us another Soaring Tales with Dale right now, and this one's titled... Totemic Polemic. Most folks these days are familiar with the word totem, but know only enough about the topic to disclose their ignorance. Well, I read a book about it, so now you'll know everything, like me. Put simply, totems are guardian spirits, the perceived essence of an animal, plant, or element of nature that individuals and groups identify with. Specific traits and capabilities, life purpose, even fate, are seen as received from totems or shared with them. Such animistic beliefs have been universal in native cultures and primitive civilizations around the world forever and can still teach us plenty about our not-really-so-modern selves. The totem book told how to find one's own totem and I thought, why not give it a try? Nothing complicated or expensive. All you do is clear your mind, simply walk out somewhere, anywhere, with no specific goal or intent other than discovery. If you do it right, your totem will manifest. 
So, following these instructions, I wandered toward a single live oak in an open hillside at the base of a mountain backlit beyond. Don't know if it mattered, but I intentionally chose the evening of summer solstice just before sundown for my experiment. As I approached, three birds flew from that tree directly at me to orbit close at eye level in a blurred 3G turn. And one was inching closer every time around. Spontaneously, I extended my arms, steeling myself not to flinch. Just when it couldn't bear any closure without flicking my nose, they all sped as quickly away, straight toward the silhouetted mountain, exactly as the sun dipped from sight. So only minutes after I'd started out, deep shadows swallowed these birds, and they were gone. I walked up to the tree, climbed it, found no nest or other sign of those birds living there. Well, not so pompous as to expect an eagle was my totem, I confess presuming it would be the red-tailed hawk. Not quite. These little zoomers were sparrow hawks, more precisely known as kestrels. And sure enough, my general manner of flight does resemble theirs more than those larger raptors who claim all the gravitas. Sparrow hawk even sometimes prefers to hover in tight spaces, which is something I enjoy too. According to this protocol, it's official. Sparrow hawk is my totem. So a few years later, I got involved in promoting and demoing the first production sailplane for, for decades built in America, an innovative ultralight design that happened to be named Sparrowhawk. And compared to most conventional sailplanes, its manner of flight also resembles the Kestrel. Then a few more years later, hundreds of miles away, at a right, right operation where we kept our 232 tied down near the end of the prevailing runway, one morning, I came out to pre-flight and was sailed again by a clutch of sparrowhawks. After wheeling around my head as before, this time they flew not into a sunset, but straight down the taxiway to the glider and frolicked over it, too, waiting for me. When I got there, they repeated the performance one more time before rushing away to bless whomever's lucky soul was next on their busy schedule. So what, or who is your totem. Thank you, Dale, for another Soaring Tales with Dale. We appreciate you sharing your stories each and every episode here on Soaring the Sky. And if you want to tell your story, maybe an interesting flight that happened to you, we have made it real easy. Go to SoaringTheSky.com, click on the Contact Us, you'll see the microphone icon, click on that, tell us your story, and there's a good chance you'll hear it on the next episode year of Soaring the Sky. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.